You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's message is preached by Pastor Scott McGrady. If you take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 15. Psalm 15. As we have gathered here this morning, we have gathered to worship our God and our Lord, right? Hopefully. Hopefully that's why you've come. Not just to hear an encouraging message or to sing uplifting songs, although, I mean, I want you to be encouraged. I, I hope you would be uplifted. But yet, hopefully that's not why you came. Hopefully you are here to come and worship our God. To ascribe to him the worthiness that belongs to him alone. That we would seek to give him the honor and glory that he alone deserves. So that we come and we are here for him. That it's all about him. And as we come and coming to worship him, then it should cause us to ask then what, what is it that he requires from us of our worship? Does he just care that we're here? That we've gathered? Or does he demand something of us in our gathering? Does he demand something of us in how we gather? I would argue that yes, he does. We see in the Old Testament that God prescribed exactly how his people Israel were to come to him, how they were to worship him, that they were to come in such a way that they would recognize that they are coming to the God who is holy, holy, holy. And so there was to be no room to divert from the prescribed way that God demanded that he be approached and worshipped. And we have... An example of that, I think, in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 10. We see the priests, the sons of Aaron, and this is what we read in verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So we see the priests... They, they do this thing, they offer this fire with their incense, this unauthorized fire. And really, as we read this, yeah, this may seem like such a minor thing that has taken place here in the passage. And, and admittedly so, when it says that they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, we're not really sure what exactly is meant by that. Um, it could be something like uh, the fact that uh, maybe they... They got the fire to light the incense, not from the brazen altar like they were supposed to, but from some other source. But in any case, whatever it means, they clearly did not offer the incense in the exact manner that God had commanded them to in Exodus 30. And what do we see happened? Well, the very next verse, verse 2 of Leviticus 10. It says, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. 
And again, so we're reading this passage, and, and it seems like such a small infraction, and yet they die for it. They're burned up. And we see in verses 6 and 7 there that Aaron and his other sons, they were prevented from mourning the, the routine way of mourning. Uh, as uh, the high priest would be kept from doing that as, as read in Leviticus 21. And why? Because the holiness of God is so far greater, so far more important than even Aaron mourning his sons. On this, R.C. Sproul comments in his book, The Holiness of God. He says, The instruction had been clear. The altar of incense was declared by God to be most holy. When Nadab and Abihu offered strange or unauthorized fire on it, they were acting in clear defiance of God. Theirs was an act of blatant rebellion, an inexcusable profaning of the holy place. They committed a sin of arrogance an act of treason against God. They profaned a most holy place. God's judgment was swift. His explanation to Moses was clear. I will show myself holy. In the sight of all people, I will be honored. Now, as we gather here today, do we not serve the same God? The God who so cared about how he is approached and how he is worshipped in the Old Testament? Do we then think that he does not care today how he is approached and how he is worshipped? That even today he remains just as fierce for his holiness as he was in the Old Testament? Absolutely. I can't see how we could argue anything else. And if God still cares today how he is approached and how he is worshipped, and if he has given us his sufficient and authoritative word, which he has in the Bible, then should not our worship, even as we gather here this morning, contain the elements of worship that he has prescribed in his word? You know, we should not add or subtract to those things. Now, some may argue differently, um, but I would argue that our worship should contain those elements of worship, as God prescribes. And specifically to our text here for this morning, not only is it the, the things that we do when we gather, and the outward expression of that worship that, that God cares about, but also, too, we should be asking, not only does, does God care about what we do, but does God care about the person who is doing it? Does God not just care about our outward expression of worship, but does he care about the inward expression in our hearts? Does he care about the worshiper who is, who is giving that worship? And I would argue, and I think our text here this morning makes very clear, he certainly does. He cares not just about the worship, but the worshiper. And so as we look at Psalm 15 here this morning, this is a psalm that could have possibly been one of the psalms that were sung while worshipers made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals that required uh, the people of Israel to celebrate those festivals in the city of Jerusalem. 
If this is the case, this would be numbered among one of the Psalms of Ascent. Tremperer Longman, he says this though. From its content, the psalm has been taken as an entrance liturgy to the sanctuary. It was likely either an actual liturgy performed at the gates of the temple or simply a reminder of the requirements for admittance to the sanctuary. So that's what we're looking at here, what this, this psalm is. And then the breakdown of this psalm, as we see, is that it begins with a question. Who is it that can come into the presence of God? Who can be where God is to worship him? That's verse 1. And then as we see, we have the answer in verses 2 through 5. And the answer is, the one to come to worship God, the one to come into his presence, to be where God is, is one who is holy and righteous. And so let's, let's look at this psalm here together. Psalm 15. A psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blameless and does what is right, and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. So again, this is a psalm of David. And as David begins this question, he asks the same question, but in, in two parts. And it's pretty clear what's in reference here. The sanctuary of the tabernacle. The tent, as he says. It is where the Israelites would come to worship God. Again, we read here in the ESV, verse 1, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? And the idea of sojourn is that the tabernacle where God specifically chose to meet with his people was not the worshiper's home. It was the Lord's house where the worshiper came to meet with God. It was the place that God had specifically put his name. The place that he would say determine is his holy dwelling on earth. And in the Old Testament, one would come to the tabernacle, and later to the temple, gathered with God's people to worship God there at the tabernacle. Or again, the temple that was built later by David's son Solomon. But in either case, David referring to the tabernacle, or if this would be then later in reference to the, or to the temple, either way, this is the place on Mount Zion, Mount Zion, in the city of Jerusalem. And so Mount Zion is what's in reference there in verse 2, or the second part of the question in verse 1, where it says, Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Who shall dwell on Mount Zion? And so, again, really the question is, who can come into God's presence to worship him with acceptable worship? 
And I think a question like this is important for us today. But it's not a question that's often asked. And really, some may argue, how can we expect anyone to ask this question of themselves, right? Because this question really demands preparation before worship, doesn't it? Uh, this question would demand self-examination. And let's, be, let's face it, who has time for that? Right? I mean, we all have busy lives. Uh, we leave church and we jump into our week and we're running to place after another place and the next place and all of these things. And we just have so much going on. Why is there so busy? We can't expect people to think on and remember even just what they heard the past Sunday, let alone ask any question of them to prepare them for the coming Sunday, right? I mean, that's just too much to ask. It's a lot. Are we just happy enough that people come and give? <laughs> Are we just satisfied in that? Is God satisfied in that? Should we not want what God wants? God wants true worshipers. Those who worship, as Jesus made very clear in the Gospel of John, those who worship in spirit and truth. Worship must be genuine, from the heart, motivated by who God is and what he has done. Motivated by the forgiveness and the salvation that he has accomplished. And worship is not just the external forms. But worship is the commitment of faith. And conformity to the truths of scripture. To the revelation of the person of God. We should come to worship our God. Prepared to worship him. He who alone is worthy of a full commitment of faith. He who is truly worthy of us preparing ourselves for worship. To come and worship in spirit and truth. He's worthy of it. I mean, we believe that we are here to come before the holy God, right? We believe that we are here to worship this God who is worthy. This God who is revealed to us in the scriptures, right? And yet, wouldn't we ask then the question, who can come and worship God? Instead, the prevailing questions in our church culture are the questions of, how did the worship, the songs, the sermon, how did they make me feel? What did I like about the worship service? What did my kids like about the worship service? But that's, they're not the questions that the scriptures direct us to. Because those questions indicate that the worshiper is at the center of the worship. Which then begs the question, who is really being worshipped? But if God is truly at the center of our worship, if we're really here to worship him, then should we not ask the questions that scripture directs us to? What kind of worship does God accept? What such people does God seek to worship him? Who shall come into the presence of God to worship him? Again, if they're not the questions we're asking, who are we really aiming to please? Who is our worship really for? 
So the, again, the question is asked there in verse 1. Who can come into God's presence to meet with him, to worship with acceptable worship? And the answer is found in verses 2 through 5. And the answer is the one who is holy and righteous. That's the one who can come and be where God is to worship him. Verse 2 says, he who walks blamelessly. In other words, the worshiper's life is marked by moral living. He is sound in character. He's not one person in public and another person in private. He's not following God in one area of his life and living in sin in another area. He is sound in his character. His walk is blameless. And so he does what is right. He acts morally and speaks truth in his heart. That is to say the worshiper is someone with integrity. They're not ingenuine. They're not deceitful. The words they speak are from the heart. And we can sum this up by saying this is someone who lives in obedience to God. This is someone who pursues holiness as God is holy. And so then, as well, everything that flows in this psalm from this point on, really, I think, is encompassed here in verse 2. So then I think there's an obvious question for us to ask if we have gathered here to worship. Are you and I pursuing holiness? Are we walking in blamelessness? Do we do what is right? Are we a people of integrity? Do we have integrity here? That people know our word is true. That whether in the workplace or in our families, our spouses, our kids, can they, can they know that they can trust what we say? Is there integrity in our worship? Or do we come and, and say how much we love God, but as we live the rest of the week, we are clearly loving sin more? Do we come and say how worthy God is of all of our praise and, and the songs that we sing to him and our time in the word? But we live the rest of the week desiring others and things more than God. Is there integrity in our worship? Have we asked the question before we came and gathered this morning? Have we asked, bowing our hearts low before our God? Oh Lord, who shall come before you? Who can come before you where you are to worship you? Who is it, O oh Lord, that worships with an acceptable worship? Because again, my friends, what is our worship when we come here this morning? If throughout the week we have lived in the lusts of our flesh, erecting idols in our hearts and pursuing ourselves. What is our worship if we have had no desire for holiness? Holiness, which the author of Hebrews says, without which we will not see God. What does this time mean? Does God want 
52 hours a year from our lives, or does God want our lives completely? What does this time mean if we leave here and live in unrepentant sin as we've always done before? Now, in verse 2 here, we have the question answered in these positive statements of what the worshiper is to be. And then as we come, as we come to verse 3, we see negative statements of what the worshiper is not to be. The worshiper is not to be a slanderer. He's not one who does what is wrong towards another person. He's not one who insults another person or tears them down. He knows God's word against slander. He knows what God's word says against gossip. He knows that the ninth commandment says, do not bear false testimony. And really, the law of God is summed up in what? Love, right? And so to do what is wrong towards your neighbor, towards another person, is not upholding God's standard of righteousness. It's not upholding his law. It's to be guilty of sin. Instead, we are to do our parts to be peaceable people, peaceable with others, and think of others before ourselves. The one who can come into the presence of God is the one who loves others and does not do them wrong. The true worshiper cares about God's law and conforms to it. And in verse 4, then, we read about this worshiper, that he is one in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. The true worshiper doesn't rejoice in evil. He doesn't rejoice in what dishonors God, but instead, those who look up to, those who allow the influence of godly people into their lives, of those who fear God, that they honor those who fear God by opening up themselves to their influence. They opened themselves up to the influence of those who are pursuing holiness and seek to honor God and seek God's approval, not the approval of man. Now, we don't want to misunderstand. Uh, this is not saying that, that we, we cut ourselves off from all of those who are not fearing God doesn't mean that we have no relationship with unbelievers and those who live in blatant sin. Otherwise, how would we be able to serve others around us? How would we be able to share the gospel with those around us? I mean, we read in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says we can't get away from this world. We'd have to leave the world. So it's not that we have no relationship and no contact with those around us, with those who do not fear the Lord. But we must be careful with who we surround ourselves with the most. We must be careful with who we allow to influence us in our lives. We should surround ourselves with those brothers and sisters in Christ who are growing in the Lord. Who are shutting out the influence of the world in carnal men. And so will push us to do the same. 
We should honor those who fear the Lord. We see in the latter part of verse 4 that the one who comes into God's presence, David describes, not just as a person of integrity, but of a person of utmost integrity, of unshakable integrity. We might say that this is a man of his word. He is committed to keeping his oaths no matter the cost, even if he experiences loss or pain by keeping his oath. He's determined not to change what he has said. And not only does he do what he has said, not only does he keep his oaths with integrity, but we see, too, the use of money, how he uses finances and interacts with finances is with integrity. He loans without demanding interest. He does not take a bribe. God's law forbid charging interest to a fellow Israelite or to the poor. And the law also forbid taking bribes. So the true worshiper is one that does not take advantage of other people, but lives with integrity in everything. Even in his lending, he's generous. This one's character is not corrupt by the prospect of financial gain. They have strong integrity. They're sound in character. We see that this is one who pursues holiness. He whose walk is blameless. And he who does what is right. The one who does not slander or do wrong to others, but conforms to God's law. The one in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. The one who keeps his word despite the cost, and who has financial integrity. David said, such a person who does these things shall never be moved. Or you could say, will not be shaken. This speaks to the security of such a holy, righteous worshiper whose whole life is lived in the presence of God, whose refuge is in the presence of God, so he will not be moved. He's secure, unmovable. See, because worship wasn't just what the worshiper did when they gathered with the rest of the believing community. It was not just the rituals and the, the prescribed things that they were to perform. But it was the entire outliving of the worshiper's faith. The entire outliving of the worshiper's life. Matter of fact, as you go through Israel's history, you would see later on that it comes to a point where God will not accept their worship. We see in the prophet Amos, that Israel would offer their sacrifices, but they offered them with a corrupt heart. And so God would not accept their sacrifices or any other aspect of their worship. It's clear the one who can enter into God's presence and worship him with acceptable worship is one who is blameless. The one who is holy with righteous integrity.
And so as we think about that, and we look at this, I think it would raise a natural question. Who then can come into God's presence? Who then can offer acceptable worship? Who is holy and righteous? I think on one hand, if we're asking that question because we are truly concerned with coming before God as God calls us to, that we are truly concerned with offering genuine, acceptable worship to God that will honor God to do as God tells us to do, if that's our concern, we're on the right track. And if having that concern, we look at ourselves and say, but how can I then worship God? How can I meet this standard? And we ask out of desire of worshiping God as he pleases. And we ask this question out of recognizing that God is holy. And so rightly demands holiness of his worshipers. I think it brings us to the point of finding how we truly worship our God. Because basically what we're asking is, who is holy? Who can offer holy worship without sin? And the answer is what? No one. No one in of themselves can do this. And so how did anyone worship God with acceptable worship? We see in the Old Testament... Those believing Israelites who were drawing near to God had to come through the priesthood, through the sacrificial system, in repentance. And one commentator points out how God called sinful men to walk before him as blameless. We see God called Abraham blameless. But was Abraham sinless? No. Nope. Genesis 6, verse 9, calls Noah blameless. But was Noah without sin? No. So what is required of the worshiper? As Israel came to offer their worship, they came, they had to come in genuine repentance of their sin through the priesthood, through the sacrificial system, trusting in God's provision to deal with their sin. And we have to do the same. We must come in genuine repentance, hating our sin, mourning our sin, turning from our sin, forsaking our sin, trusting in Jesus Christ, God's provision to deal with our sin. That our sin, the sin of all who would believe on Christ, was credited to Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. That on the cross, He bore our curse. He died in our place. So that our sin, past, present, and future, would be fully paid for. And now, through Christ, our High Priest, through His sacrifice, we have access to God. 
Hebrews 10, 14 says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Through Christ we have been saved. We have a standing of perfection before God in the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And standing in that righteousness, we are empowered to put off sin more and more. He causes us to grow in holiness, that process of sanctification. And then we read a few verses later, Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Through Jesus Christ, we have permanent access to God. To live continually in the presence of God. To live a life of worship. And living a life of worship, if we've truly been saved, if we've truly been justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone, the only logical response is a life of worship. Matter of fact, that's what we read in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, now, therefore, pointing us back to everything Paul had been saying, as Paul has been arguing and showing how we are justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual, uh, or the word there that's, that's translated spiritual, is where we get our word logic. Some translations say reasonable. This is your reasonable or your logic act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. My friends, if we recognize that God is holy and we are not, we must trust in Jesus Christ and his work of salvation to restore us to a right relationship with God. If we truly know Christ's forgiving work, the love of God for such wretched sinners like me and you, how can we not see how great this God is, this God who has provided a way for us to know him, uh, to live in his presence, who has provided for us to worship him, he who is so great, do we not want to worship him? And he has made it so we can. This God who is so glorious, worthy of all of our worship and praise. Do we not desire to offer him acceptable worship and approach him as he calls us to? And yes, in gathering, gathering how he has prescribed in his word, but also in how we live before him, in pursuit of holiness, recognizing that he who called us, who called us through his gospel, he is holy. And so putting off sin more and more to honor him, to worship him with our lives, our lives offered as a living sacrifice for the glory of his name. 
And my friends, if you have not trusted in Jesus, if it is not through his sacrifice and resurrection power that you come before God, trusting in Christ alone for your right standing before God, then my friends, you have no access to God. If you do not come recognizing that God is holy, and so he demands holiness, and that holiness can be found nowhere else but in trusting in his son, then you cannot come. You cannot know this God in his kindness and his grace, but you will only know him and his justice and wrath. So my friends, I, I plead with you, repent. Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus by faith. Trust in him alone. Trust that he has offered himself for all who will believe on him. For you, if you will believe on him. Trust in him and you will be saved. You will stand before the holy God in the righteousness of Jesus and the holiness of Jesus. You can have hope in his sin, pain, death. And know that he is your risen Lord who lives forever to intercede for you. That through him, you can live in the presence of our great God. That you can live to worship our great God. That we can gather together to worship our great God. And my friends, when we do gather, when we come here, do we come ready to offer acceptable worship to our great God? Do we recognize that he is worthy of us coming prepared to offer acceptable worship to our great God? That we would come in repentance, confessing sin, where we've harmed others or done wrong, that we would go and do what is necessary to do our part to make it right. That we would be pursuing holiness, offering acceptable worship in what we do here. Having lives that live out worship, that are lived as a holy sacrifice acceptable to God. Are we seeking to be one who walks blamelessly and does what is right? Who does not slander others or do what is wrong towards them? That we seek to conform to God's law. That we surround ourselves with God-fearing people and strive to keep our word at all costs. And have integrity in what we say and what we do and even in our finances. And none of this is to save us. We're saved in the work of Christ and in Christ alone. But if we have been saved, is this not our response to pursue holiness, to please our God, to offer to him the worship he desires? We see how great and awesome he is. We want to give ourselves to this God in worship. We want to offer acceptable worship. We want to live in the presence of our God, living a life of worship. My friends, are you living as a, 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 a living sacrifice? you come 
worshiping in spirit and in truth. The God who is so worthy and so great. Is he not worthy of acceptable worship? Is he not worthy of us preparing our hearts and coming before him to be where he is, to worship him? If you know this God, if you have been saved by this God, your answer is certainly yes, he is worthy. So let us do that very thing. Let us live in the presence of God, worshiping our God in everything we do, coming and gathering together, prepared to worship our God, the body of Christ, to offer him acceptable worship. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visit nvbc.com.